You're listening to the Art of Parenting podcast. I'm your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel. My intention is to share simple tips and tricks that will make a huge difference in your life and home, as well as give you all the support and encouragement you deserve to enhance your parenting experience. I've created a safe place for us to explore the issues and concerns that matter to you, bringing you clarity and solution with Q&A sessions and inspirational conversation with world-renowned experts in a variety of fields. I'm a firm believer that parenting was never meant to be done alone, and I'm here to debunk the general consensus that it has to be hard. A warm welcome to you, and thanks for tuning in. Hello and welcome back to The Art of Parenting. This is your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel. And today I have Dr. Kat with us, who is a perinatal psychologist, uh, actually in California, and has her own podcast, The Mom and Mind Podcast. And I am very excited to be speaking to her because I know I always have something to learn from my guest. And so, Dr. Kat, thank you so much for making the time to be here with us today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really happy to be here and um, share with your audience whatever I can about perinatal mental health. Um, and I appreciate that you create space for this as well. Thank you. So I always like to get started with what is your definition of the art of parenting? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I think coming from my perspective as a psychologist and seeing so much of how our upbringing impacts how we are as parents, I do believe that becoming a parent gives us the opportunity to like reflect on ourselves as well as things that maybe didn't serve us well in the past, opportunities to change that, um, opportunities to grow and, and reflect and learn about yourself and your child along the way. It can be very difficult, obviously, at times, but it can also be really enhance your life uh, to be able to be in uh, that dance of sorts with your child while you might also be taking care of some of your own growth from your own childhood. And I, I, it just creates such a beautiful opportunity that is, again, very challenging. But when you can tune in uh, and when you can, I guess, have insight or self-reflect uh, on how you want to be as a parent um, in relation to your child and how you want your child to feel in relation to you. It can be just so rich and rewarding. Mm, beautiful. And it, I mean, when you were saying that, I was seeing a blank canvas, right? That we get to, we, we get to create something new because I, I love the way you say, you know, that, that we come to parenting with our own childhood. And I've always said like the only real diploma that we have is our childhood and, and we get to re-examine that and, and make, make changes and, and evolve. So wonderful. Yeah. So before we get uh, too involved in our conversation, I would love for you to share with our listeners a little bit about your background and how you came to do the work that you're doing today. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I am a psychologist and, um, I've, I've always known that I wanted to be a psychologist since, well, since age 12, at least it's, it's sort of just in my bones to, to do this work and, and help people explore and heal in, in the ways that they need to. So that was my trajectory. And, you know, I went through school, did all that stuff and, um, just kind of became a generalist in psychology, just helping like everybody. Um, but there was some part of me that always wanted a specialty. Uh, and I didn't quite know what that was until it found me, uh, when I was, um, pregnant with my daughter, pregnancy was fine and everything, but postpartum turned out to be not so fine. And, uh, you know, as a psychologist, um, I had never really been taught much about, uh, postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety. It was just this thing that can happen to women. So it wasn't discussed in grad school or residency or, or really anywhere uh, with any substance. So when it was happening to me, I didn't recognize it. And it it took quite some time to figure out what was going on, in part because, you know, as many people do, I entered into motherhood thinking, well, maybe this is just how it's supposed to be. And maybe I'm doing it wrong, you know, became some kind of a self-reflection um, or rather a reflection on me rather than what I was going through. And um, once I, it took about a year, honestly, once I figured out what was going on, I, it sort of lit a fire in me to try and make sure that nobody else had to go through what I went through. And that that's where my, my specialty started um, about 12 and a half years ago. And I, yeah, I, I started really looking into perinatal mental health. And once I got into the, to the world of it, I realized just how little I knew and just how little everybody else knows. And, you know, I'm a therapist, so there's uh, an added pressure uh, in some ways on therapists to, well, you're supposed to, to know and you're supposed to um, be able to get yourself out of this. And that's just not the case. You know, people need help and support and that's very real and very normal. Um, so as I began to specialize and really focus my, my practice in helping um, moms and dads and, and new parents, um, deal with the mental health challenges that come up uh, during all of the reproductive phase, really, um, fertility, conception, pregnancy, birth, loss, and postpartum. Um, I also began to volunteer with Postpartum Support International. And once I found that organization, um, it really um, formed my kind of direction in life as um, I went from a volunteer in 2014 to now this year um, being the board chair. And um, I've been involved with the organization since. And really, I, I swim, eat, breathe, live in the world of perinatal mental health because I am so passionate about helping families um, get through this period of time. So at my practice, um, I do my volunteer work with PSI, and uh, I also have a podcast called mom in mind and do a couple of other things, but really, yeah, my, my calling found me, um, in an unexpected way, but looking back, I'm really glad it did.
Yes. And I'm kind of surprised when you say that in grad school, there was no mention of all of the different, you know, mental mood disorders that we might have during our our reproductive years. I mean, to me, it seems like that's, that's like so, so important. Uh, and, and that, that's kind of, I'm, I'm shocked that you, that, that there was no real mention of it because, um, you know, we talk, we, we often talk, and I know now we call it, uh, PMADS, right? Perinatal. Perinatal mood disorders. Right. To, to encompass everything. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The language shifts as we kind of learn more, but yeah, perinatal mood disorders is where we're at right now. Okay. So I would love if you could unpack a little bit, like what, you know, maybe for, if there is a listener who is in that phase of, of, you know, reproductive, whether they are expecting or trying to conceive, like what are some maybe red flags or, or things to be attentive to that would, you know, be the onset of, a, you know, mental, mental health issue that, that you would want to talk to somebody about? Yeah. Um, good question. Um, what I'll lead with there is for some, um, risk factors that might tip somebody off even ahead of time, um, before they're even going into their reproductive journey. Um, so anybody who has a history of a mental health condition like depression, anxiety, or even uh, like in their own history, um, or anything like OCD or panic, um, certainly bipolar disorder or psychosis, that can be your own, like your own personal history puts you at a higher risk of developing something during uh, the reproductive uh, process. Or if you have a family history, even if you have not experienced any of that yourself, or you aren't sure if you have, if there's a family history of any of those conditions that puts you at a higher risk. So there is a genetic component um, to this, just as with any other health condition. Um, so that that's first and foremost, top of the list. Um, secondly, if you already know that you have um, a sensitivity to hormonal change, like PMS, um, PMDD, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, um, or or some type of shift in your mood when you are premenstrual or at some point in your cycle. Like if that's a regular thing for you, um, then that indicates you might have a sensitivity to your hormones shifting. Um, so those are some of the, the bigger things to just like have in mind. If you know that that is true for you, then, um, then, you know, I, I can go into to tips and problem solving later, but I think it is worthwhile just to know that about yourself. Um, what can be hard is to know if your mother or grandmother or somebody in your family had a mental health condition. So sometimes we don't know those answers, but if you do, then then that helps. Yeah. Um, so when somebody is um, starting to experience a shift in mood, it can be really subtle. Um, that's why some what what is common for people is they don't realize what's happening until they're in it, um, because some the times the shift can be really subtle. But for things like depression, I would be paying attention to feeling a lower mood, like a down mood, 
um, feeling sad and not just like, you know, at here and there, but something that's a little bit more consistent, feels like something you can't quite shake. Along with that for depression specifically is uh, kind of losing a motivation um, and losing interest in doing things that you normally like to do. And then it can become a little bit more physiological, like having a foggy headedness or um, your memory isn't quite as sharp or you're having uh, changes in your appetite, um, changes in your sleep pattern. And then for some other internal kind of cognitive changes, you might notice yourself being harder on yourself or even feeling like sometimes people feel stuck or they they just can't like quite get past some of, of how they're feeling, like it can feel really heavy. So when depression is a little bit more severe or a lot more severe, it can it can become quite concerning coming to thoughts of like not wanting to be here or thoughts of suicide. And that that is a more severe case of depression. For anxiety, it starts off as worry like a lot of worry, not just your normal, oh, I need to get these things done. How am I going to do it? But um, kind of a restless worry, a worry that feels like you can't, you can't quite stop it. Like it's getting away from you, even to the point where it might be impacting your sleep. Um, you're up thinking about things and, and you can't quite set it aside in order, you know, to do what you're doing, like sleeping or, or even work sometimes. Um, so that can come with like a restless, fidgety kind of an energy and, and again, like difficulty with focus. Okay. So those are all kind of when we're feeling those. I mean, and to me, it sounded really like when we don't recognize ourselves. Like I, I know when you were describing depression, I kind of went through that at the beginning of this whole pandemic uh, situation that we've all gone through. And I think we all had you know, different levels of, of mental health. Uh, but uh, I know I, I was starting to worry because I wasn't recognizing myself. Like I'm, I'm a pretty, you know, happy-go-lucky person. I'm, I'm pretty optimistic. And I was like, whoa, like what is going on? So, so, so that is, is interesting. So one thing, I mean, two, two questions came up when you were describing all of that. One of them is this idea that we always talk about having a baby brain as if, as if it was like, you know, we, we kind of, uh, put it aside and it's just, oh, you know, just silly baby brain. But for me, if I understand correctly, like there's a real, shift in in our brain going on and and it is actually created for us to bond with our baby and so forth right is that correct like can you explain a little bit more about that um yeah so there's um well i think there are a lot of different ways that can show up for people some of that baby brain stuff. Are you talking about like early postpartum? Early postpartum, like we, we tend, because when you were describing, you know, like worrying or, or, or being, you know, kind of foggy to me, that's also maybe that postpartum period where, geez, you're kind of, you know, sleep deprived and you've just, you know, <laughs> run a marathon by, by having this birth and all of this so that, you know, you, you kind of have some time where you need to recuperate. So 
And, and so, you know, when, when do we know that that is just kind of normal physiological, you know, nature? And when, when do we have like, oh, oh, there's something more going on? Right. Uh, great question. I, there is often some confusion around this period of time in terms of mood changes. So in and around 80% of people will have what's called the baby blues, like a, that period of time postpartum where you're a bit foggy, you might even be a, a bit tearful, you, but you still, you know, feel like yourself, you just are exhausted or, you know, you might have some minor mood changes or that fogginess that you're describing. And, and yes, so 80% of people, that's a very normal and common experience. Uh, however, if during you know, and, and that's in and around about two weeks. So after about that time, you start to, or a lot of people start to kind of level out, um, feel a little bit more back to themselves. Um, and, and they can like sort of feel a trajectory to, to feeling, feeling better. However, if it, within that two week period, if your symptoms are intense and don't quite feel like there, there's some, some things that can happen during birth and postpartum that might um, lead people to feel like really numb and checked out um, or or overwhelmed to the point that it's hard to function. So that's what we're looking for during that two-week period of time. If it feels intense, you're having difficulty functioning, then that might tip us off that there's something else going on. And also, if after that two-week period, and honestly, anytime within the first year postpartum, if you are having those symptoms that I described earlier for two weeks or more, then we're looking at something like a perinatal mood disorder. So we're looking at intensity of symptoms and length of time. And really, it's that that two weeks or, or more that is an indicator. Unless it's very severe, then you would want to you know seek help right away. Right. And when you talk about like postpartum, you know, mood disorders, how far into the future can that be? Like is because you talk about that first year, but could something come up maybe two years, three years down the road? Like, or is that not considered postpartum anymore? Um, well, there's um, so if you're looking from a like a purely um, medical or a psychiatric standpoint, looking through the DSM four, which is the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual, their definitions of what is postpartum and what is peripartum or perinatal is very limited, um, very limited. Um, so we in the field don't go by that unless you know it's just for diagnostic purposes, but. In the field, we know that symptoms can start anytime in the first year. Even if, like, you know, the first eight, nine months were fine, um, there can be other shifts that happen, and very specifically hormonal shifts. There are um, there are more vulnerable periods of time where mood changes might happen. That is uh, one when your period restarts, and two if you are stopping nursing. Those are really big hormonal changes that, depending on your constitution and life situation could bring an onset of symptoms. Now, if within, you know, there's a symptom onset within that first year, even if it's mild uh, sometimes, but 
certainly if it's untreated or unattended to, symptoms can continue for a long time. And for people who have untreated, unaddressed mental health conditions, sometimes it can even peak in and around four years postpartum. So people could still be experiencing things for a long time and unfortunately not even kind of realize it the same way I didn't uh, initially is that uh, there's lots of reasons why, why people might not notice it, but also people might not have access to help or know that they can get help. So, yeah. Right. Right. And and it's interesting because um, I just went uh, the other day, I've been um, recently doing some uh, birth doula work. And uh, I went to the home of a, you know, young couple who had just had their child and, and, and the mom started talking to me about how she was feeling very anxious. And and that, you know, she was, she was worried, like when she would go off to the bathroom, that something was going to happen to her child. And I just said, you know, just be aware of that. Like if it gets to be too much, you know, please reach out and, and such. And I think that those little things we, like you said, like we think that that's just normal, but if it gets to be overwhelming, then definitely um, seek help. And and for a while, I was doing uh, volunteer work for uh, a warm line here uh, for the Postpartum Health Alliance. And it, it was it was fascinating, like the, the, you know, sequence of questions about, you know, do you have thoughts of harming yourself, harming your child, all of this. And, and, and it was kind of intense, like when you when I had to talk to some people that you could feel like there was, there was a lot going on. And and then, you know, luckily there are those support lines that we can call when we're, when we're feeling kind of out of sorts. So. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so one thing also I wanted to ask, uh, we, we tend to talk about, you know, these perinatal and postpartum mood disorders, mostly for the birthing person. So for, for the mothers, what, what about our partners? What about the dads? Like, are they, you know, they, they're prone to having mood swings as well when they become parents. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So I'll, I'll go with statistics first. So in and around 10% of dads, um, there's not enough research on a birthing partners who are not who don't identify rather as father. There's not enough statistical work being done there, but we do know that any non-birthing partner can develop a um, perinatal mental health condition like depression or anxiety. Okay. So in and around um, 10%. Now, if the birthing person is, is already experiencing a perinatal mental health condition, then the likelihood goes up to about 50%. Oh, wow. And that's in dads again. So um, the the statistics bear that out, but also it's hard because non-birthing parents are, are have, historically haven't been checked in with or uh, attuned to, you know, to see how they're doing. Um, but we do know that there there is evidence and research out there that also shows some hormonal changes in men postpartum. Um, increases in estrogen. And so, yes, there's some, some sciencey stuff to back that all up. But if you, if you talk to somebody, you know, they are, this is a major life change and it's not just happening to the birthing person. 
And so the partner is also going through transformation and change of their own. And it, it is really important to think of perinatal mental health as a as a system that both parents and sometimes grandparents as well are dealing with. And that's not to say it's all always very negative, but it is a life change. And with any life change, there's an increased stress. But if people do have those like risk factors that I discussed before, then certainly that makes them more vulnerable to developing um, a mood mood condition. It's interesting that you said grandparents too, because I, I had a flashback of of uh, announcing that I was expecting the first grandchild on my husband's side, and it wasn't received <laughs> with very mm. positive. And now, now thinking back, it's like, oh, okay, that you know, <laughs> maybe that was what was going on. Like, uh, you know, she was not, she was not thrilled. Like, you know, she she's so happy now because she has four grandchildren and so forth. But I remember like being surprised, you know, I was expecting like, you know, overjoyed and, and it wasn't at all. So that's, that's, that's interesting because it's true. It's a big, you know, it's a big shift for them as well. Yeah, sure. And, and this can all be uh, true for adoptive parents as well. Um, like mood changes might be happening for them as well. So really anybody who's going into um, the parenting transition, we want to really be we really want to be checking in with them to ask them how they're really doing. Right, right. And that is there. I mean, I feel like there's there's a lack of support there for all new families. Are, do you see, like in your profession, do you see that there's maybe more support being created for new families to, to really have that check-in? Oh, yeah. Yes, absolutely. I, I, I do think there's still a long way to go, but there are resources that are available and a lot that more that are being created that are free um, because accessibility to services is really, really important to be available to all people. So yeah, those resources are being developed and it's not just in mental health that people need the support. Like you were mentioning doula care, that's important. Lactation is important if, if they're um, nursing or able to nurse. Um, uh, things like, you know, meal delivery services and um, some things that developed even more heavily during COVID, I guess, if there's one good thing, um, is that so many things are online now. Um, and so many things can just be delivered right to your house, given you have the financial resources. So there is more accessibility now, which is fantastic. And so people are able to, to connect into online support groups um, to where they might not have been able to even find one in their town before they can connect to one within their state anywhere. Right. The, the, my thing with, with all of that is, is I, I'm glad that all of these, you know, resources exist, but I feel like there's a lack of sharing it with, with maybe the families. Like there, there isn't a, a, you know, full-fledged system of you, you're, you're, you know, you're an expecting parent and here are the resources. It's almost, it's left to each individual to do their own research. Are you seeing, do you, do you think that that's true or do you think there's changes being made there? Um, you mean uh, like, sorry, in terms of 
um, systems getting those resources to people? Yes. And, and I, I guess I'm just talking from personal experience. I, I gave birth in France with my first child and here in the U.S. with my second. And the prenatal and postpartum care were just so, so different, mm-hmm. right? Where, yeah. where yeah. in France, I just knew all my resources. They, they were there, they were checking up on me, uh, you know, especially postpartum, uh, all of that here. I feel that it's really left up to the individual to do their research, to find a doula, to find a lactation specialist, to find you, you know, all of this when it's not like, okay, you're entering a new phase of your life. This is what, you know, this is, this is what you need to know. Um, and, and I feel that that's kind of missing for our families. I totally agree. It, it's a, it's a major gap in, in service to families. And, and unfortunately it's a, a little bit of a product of the way the U S medical system is set up because everything is so siloed. Um, and, and separate, uh, I, there, there's absolutely, a, a work being done to try and make it not so separate in that way and to not put such a burden on parents, but, uh, you know, to have to do all of this research, but man, there's so far to go. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And even, I mean, to me, it's, it, and, and that's probably a whole other topic, but just the, the whole, you know, maternal leave and paternal leave. It's like, to me, that's, that's like, you know, so evident that, that, you know, both parents need time and yet, you know, it just, it's not standardized and that, so, so yeah, yeah. but that's, <laughs> but honestly, I do believe that that impacts mental health directly. Oh, completely. It's there. I mean, people, it's ridiculous to ask somebody to go back to work at six weeks postpartum. There's, it's it's just a horrible, horrible thing to ask somebody to do. There's no way that that doesn't impact somebody's mental health. And so, so who, like, who is fighting for those changes? Because to me, that seems like it's, you know, up in, in, in kind of our governmental spheres and, and all of that, like, are there, do you see like in your world that there is a movement to try to change that? Yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, at the, at the state level and the national level, I'm obviously national change happens much more slowly. Um, California, because it, it tends to be a more progressive state. That's something that has passed. And we do have um, longer leave here than a lot of other states do. Um, but there is there there are some organizations that are working really hard. There's a place called the Center for Parental Leave Leadership. Um, and part of what they do is advocacy. And part of what they do is help people work within the the leave systems that they already ha- that are in place like let's say at their jobs and help them navigate it and and maximize it in in whatever way they can. So there there are some organizations like that. There's also oh gosh and the name ex- escapes me. There's another um organization that's trying to help teachers, very specifically teachers who are experiencing the loss of a child. Um, have extended leave more than just your standard three-day parental leave. So unfortunately, there's not like a a massive nationwide cohesive, you know, push. There there is, but it's 
um, you know, bills are being proposed and, and put up for, for votes. But unfortunately, things like this also get wrapped up in these bills that are put forth are just massive. And there are, there's all kinds of other things thrown in there. So things pertaining to maternal health and maternal mental health often get dropped out. However, there, there's a really, really, really big push these days to be looking at uh, maternal mortality. Um, and th- those types of, of laws are being shifted, I guess, if I can say. Good, good. Because I mean, to me, it seems, you know, outrageous that we have such a high maternal and infant mortality rate in a country that is, you know, supposedly industrialized, kind of, you know, leading the way for 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 things. I just, I'm, I'm always flabbergasted when I see numbers, and especially the the discrepancy with, you know, black and brown mothers as opposed to white mothers. That like that whole racism within the medical system is just horrible. Yeah, yeah. Thankfully, there is some groundswell there. Um, Good. I mean, it's it's been a long time um, coming for things to change, um, but it it's starting to change. I think what's difficult is that when when in order for things to to change, sort of on the ground, like in a person's life, um, that change takes a while to get from you know Capitol Hill, let's say, down to the person. So, but but hopefully, because there's so much effort and energy specifically um, to help with uh, BIPOC mothers and and families, that things will go a little faster. Good, good. So, um, just to to backtrack a little bit I, earlier, I asked about some kind of red flags to be looking out. Now, let's talk more about preventive, right? If we know that we're maybe at risk or maybe even not, maybe we're not at risk, but we just want to be careful to set ourselves up so that uh, we're not, you know, maybe going down a, a kind of a negative spiral. What are some things that parents can do more of an, on a preventive um, aspect? Sure. Yeah. Um, thankfully, there are quite a few things that you can look at, um, in terms of prevention. Um, you know, a a lot of people have a birth plan, um, but I like to direct people to ideas around postpartum planning, uh, and to get their, their systems set up to a point with flexibility, um, so that when they're in the, uh, the birth stages and the postpartum stages, that things are already, mm, figured out a little bit. Um, what I haven't mentioned so far is how um, how important sleep is um, to this whole process. If you you could have fine mental health and and have horrible sleep for a couple of days and then you just you feel horrible. Um, so multiply that by however many nights um, moms and dads and partners are not sleeping, it it's impact on mental health is almost immediate. So now this gets a little bit hard with sleep in particular because um, sometimes getting good sleep requires having a lot of people helping. And like during COVID, nobody had help. Uh, And uh, so it a little bit depends on who's available to support you. And people who are nursing are going to be getting less sleep than people who are bottle feeding or uh, feeding in other ways. So 
Right. Oh, so a workaround is really sitting down and having a talk with your partner or whoever your support people are about about who can support um, the postpartum person to be sleeping. Um, it, which can sometimes look like who's going to help take care of the other kid. Um, how can we set up uh, meal plans or who can bring food by essentially to take the workload off of the parents um, so that they can have time for recovery. So sleep is really, really important there. Um, sometimes I will have people split the night so that we're, we're typically working towards the birthing person or, um, or the nursing person to have between five and six hours of solid sleep, like not interrupted. That takes a while to get to. So what can we do in the meantime? Um, and that might look like splitting the night, um, in some way, like one person has one six hour shift and one person has another six hour shift. Um, and then negotiating the details within that. Outside of that, uh, what I do find a lot is um, eating. Eating regularly is uh, is can get really hard. And I will talk to so many moms and ask them, have you had anything to eat yet today? And it can be three o'clock and they haven't yet. Um, and it seems like a, a basic thing, but it is so important foundationally for, for mental health and wellness um, to you know, be having at least small snacks throughout the day or having little stations next to where you're nursing or feeding where you can grab a snack while baby's eating or even next to your bed if you need to. Um, just places where you have easily accessible food options during the day. And then if possible, setting up a meal train where people are bringing meals, you know, for the first couple of weeks, month, so that you have something that you can count on um, that you don't have to prepare yourself. It's also really important to, also depending on your support system, to have connection um, with other people um, and sometimes even with your partner um, as much as possible so that you are, you know, feel connected to your to your community and your support system. And then also just having regular what I would call like mood check-ins, not in any way that you're, you know, you'd be like somebody's keeping track of your mood, but really, you know, how are you today? Um, what's going on? What do you need? And ha with, with couples in particular, um, so that there can, so that everybody can be looking at it kind of together and notice any shifts and change, keeping track of, you know, how somebody's feeling and, is it because they had a horrible night's sleep? How can you help them get some sleep? You know, those kinds of things. Um, so in terms of th that's kind of stuff that you can set up in advance before baby even comes. Yeah, no, and I like that, that you talk about that postpartum planning, because it's true that I feel like I know the families that I work with, it's, it's really this, they're in this like sensitive period for, for just birthing and that's the only thing they can think of. And yeah. it's like, but wait a minute, there's like yeah. the rest of your life afterwards. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh -huh. so to, to get them to think that way. And, and for me, like I, I often say, you know, maybe in that uh, third trimester, uh, cook, you know, double portions and freeze some of it, things like that. So that you feel, um, 
better prepared, but it's true. It's like creating that, that village of support that you are going to need, you know, even, even on, you know, who, who are you going to call at two o'clock in the morning to, to have a good cry if you need to, right? It's having those, um, uh, that whole support. And I really like what you said about, you know, the sleep that is so, so important. And, you know, we, we all always say, sleep when the baby sleeps, which, you know, actually, I think it was yesterday, I was seeing some funny, you know, meme about that, where mom was just, you know, sleeping where wherever, because baby had fallen asleep. Uh (laughs) But, (laughs) you know, yes, that's funny. But there is truth in that, especially those first few weeks It's like, you know, baby is is getting used to living on planet Earth, and you're getting used to having this baby. So just be on their rhythm for for a while. Right. And that and that's where it can get hard too because if you don't have support to help you do the other things, it's really hard. It is. It is. I know I feel very fortunate because I had my second my daughter was already 4, so she was already in preschool. So I had that those few hours in the day you know, to just be with baby and to rest and whatever. But, but I do remember, you know, it was harder. And like I said, the first one was in France. So those first three months I was on, you know, complete maternity leave was able to just, you know, be at my rhythm, which is very different than here. So, so yeah. Um, Well, this has been wonderful. Uh, Thank you so much for, for answering all of these questions. I know that they will be well received from our listeners who are maybe, you know, entering these years of uh, uh, conceiving and and all of that. And so I I love to wrap up with a more personal question, if I may. Sure. And you mentioned that you had uh, a daughter. So I know that offline, you told me she was 12. So if going back maybe 13 years ago, when you were expecting your first child, Mm -hmm. What wise words would you tell yourself knowing all that you know today? Yeah, I would tell myself that it's okay if you don't feel okay. And just because you feel bad doesn't mean you are bad, that there's help available and, you know, you don't have to suffer alone and in silence. Um, And this is nothing to be ashamed of. It's something that people go through and it it has no no bearing or no reflection on who you are as a person it is just simply something that is happening to you that you're trying to cope with and deal with and um i absolutely would reach out for help thank you for that yes definitely any uh parting words that you would like to leave our listeners with today yeah, absolutely. I I do want people to know that they are not alone and that help is available. And um, anybody can go to postpartum.net and learn a little bit more about perinatal mental health conditions and also access a huge long list of free online support groups, both for pregnancy and loss and birth and um, postpartum as well as a, a therapist directory for uh, to find a therapist who are trained in perinatal mental health so that you can be getting the help that you need. It's, it's there, it's available and accessible anytime. 
Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Kat, for coming on and sharing all of your wisdom with us today. Thank you so much for having me and focusing on this topic. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Art of Parenting podcast. And if you did, please share it with your loved ones and make sure to leave a review so it can get heard by many more. And remember, if you've got a question, let me know. I'm here for you. Till next time.